Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Micah. That is one of our minor prophets that we are in today. Uh, we will spend three Sundays last week, uh, today, and then next Sunday in Micah to wrap that up. Uh, so uh, Micah has certainly been something that, uh, that I'd honestly never really studied a lot before. I'd read through it in some Bible reading plans, but never really studied what Micah was about. And so I think your pastors are certainly learning that as we dig into the Minor Prophets, uh, there's certainly a, a lot of uh, symbolism and things that go in the text. And so it's not just your normal narrative. And so there's a lot of things that happen in these minor prophets that we are uh, kind of having to dig through to get to them. So uh, Micah chapter three is where we'll be today. <clears throat> a big shout out to Kyle Chesser uh, for preaching and teaching so well last week. He did a great job in, in getting us into that. And I, I enjoyed listening to him. Uh, I was out of town with my family uh, at the beach. And so uh, we all gathered around the TV and, and watched uh, uh, Pastor Kyle uh, uh, unload the uh, first couple of chapters for us in Micah. And then again to our elder team for doing such a great job uh, handling the word faithfully and clearly uh, through the minor prophets that we've been in. Pastor, Pastor PJ, Pastor Paul, Pastor Blake uh, have done a fantastic work from this pulpit so far as we have been um, uh, going through the minor prophets. Um, Kyle told us last week, <clears throat> that the, the theme of the verse for Micah is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And this is what it says. He, uh, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And so uh, you'll see a theme as we walk through uh, Micah specifically as, as the writer, as, as, as it's written down, uh, you'll say, you'll, you'll hear the, the writer say, hear this. Because this is really important, <clears throat> you'll hear an accusation from God against his people, uh, and then you'll hear uh, a judgment that he is going to sentence them to, and then somewhere in there you'll also hear that salvation will eventually come, and that's just the, that's just the evidences of grace that God shows us in these Old Testament, specifically in Micah. Uh, that salvation is always a thread, even through the minor prophets and how angry they are and how uh, I can see them. I almost see them like grumpy old men, you know, and, and they're kind of bent over and they've got kind of a crooked finger whenever they're saying this. That's my picture. You don't have to have the same picture, but that's just my picture of minor prophets and they are just railing at the people as well as it probably should be uh, whenever they come out to say what it was that they are having to say to the people. So Kyle reminded us of three things from the first two chapters. First was this, a holy God will always confront sin. That was true then, and it's true today. A holy God will always confront sin, else he cannot be holy. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, uh, he cannot be holy and without confronting your sin, my sin, the sin of the people uh, in Micah's day. Uh, and so what was Israel's sin? Do you remember what Israel's sin was? Well, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, it was that they were worshiping idols. They were, uh, they were uh, committing spiritual infidelity. And they were uh, in, indulging themselves with temple prostitutes. They had just come off the rails, Jerry. Uh, and, and so uh, they were... Uh, uh, they, they were just—they were literally off the reservation because they they engaged themselves in such debauchery along the way. Kyle then said, uh, "Remind us of this: that God justly pours out His wrath against sin. 
Again, he did it in Micah's day, and he does the same thing today. He pours out his wrath against sin. And so these minor prophets point Israel and us to the gravity of their sin of Israel at the time and to the gravity of our own sin today. Uh, because we're, we're tempted to ignore our own sin, right? We're tempted to ignore our own sin and look at others and point to others and see what others' sin is. Uh, but what does Jesus say about that in the New Testament? He says what? Take the what out of your own eye. The log, yes. Take the log out of your own eye before you take the what? Splinter, the speck, out of someone else's eye. And so I wanted to bring a log up here, uh, you know, to just kind of throw it around like this uh, to see how ridiculous it was that, that what that would look like in trying to take a splinter out of someone's eye with a log sticking out of my own. But that's what Jesus was saying, that, that we have our own sin that, uh, that God confronts along the way, that God justly pours out his wrath against sin. Three other things uh, that I want to, that I uh, kind of took from Kyle's sermon is that God reminded Israel that he would take what was theirs and give it away. And then Kyle reminded us in his preaching of this beautiful fact that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That was a reminder that he gave us last week. And then Micah reminded the people that judgment was coming. That judgment would be coming. But Kyle's last point from chapters one and two was this, that God always offers hope in the midst of judgment. God always offers hope in the midst of judgment. In the midst of all this mess that someone had to break through, that someone had to break through, who, and he was the breaker. Uh, that great breaker is Jesus, the one who brings us hope. And that was a summation of what Pastor Kyle to, uh, preached for us last week in chapters 1 and 2. So that today, we move on to Micah chapter 3. So I hope you've got your Bibles with you. Uh, we're going to be going through that. We'll be in the New Testament a little bit uh, as we uh, support what it is that Micah has to teach us in chapter 3. And so in this chapter, rem Micah reminds the people of these particular things in chapter 3, uh, that there will be false prophets that will come. He said, hey, uh, Israel, there are going to be false prophets that are going to come into your midst and you're going to believe them. You're going to follow them and you're going to listen to them. And he also said this, that this time will be filled with false teachers who do what they do for sordid gain. And then he says, these false teachers will do nothing but tickle your ears and practice falsehoods, which you again will listen to. Look with me in Micah chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Here's what uh, Micah writes for us. Uh, its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. See what Micah told him? This is really interesting to me. Uh, here's, here's some things that Micah had to say. He says, first off, uh, its heads give judgment for bribes. Write that down. Underline that in your Bible if you're writing your Bible, if you're highlighting your phone, that its heads give judgment 
for bribes. The, the teachers, the religious teachers during that day were taking bribes. The judgments that they were giving out, they were taking money under the table to give the judgments out that they were, that they were being paid to give. Then it says this, it's priests teach for a price. So the priests, instead of listening to the Lord and giving the message that the Lord had given them to teach and preach, they were like, hey, uh, what is it you want me to preach on? Hey, slide me a 20 and I'll preach on that this week. And then the, the worst part of it all is that they do this. They lean on the Lord. And they say this, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They point to the Lord as the source of it all. So judgment for a bribe, priests teach for a price, and they say, look at what the Lord's doing. Then in, in, uh, in 12, here's what he says. Because Israel chose to listen. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Because of this, because of the bribes they were taking, because they were listening to somebody else, because they were taking this sordid gain, because they were being paid under the table to say what it was they were being paid to say, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. Here's the warning because of Israel's sin. They were worshiping idols, spiritual infidelity, temples, they were this cult prostitution in the temples. Think about that. It'd be like us setting up a brothel here at Refuge. We're trying to make money here, but not that way, okay? They, they had cult prostitutes. They said, because of these things, destruction and disbursement, but you're going to be scattered, all that's coming because of the way that you are living. You might ask yourself, why wouldn't Israel listen to these men of God? Why wouldn't Israel hear what it was that they had to say and change their ways? Why wouldn't they listen to their pastor? Well, when they listened to this man of God who was saying, these things that are happening here, Micah's saying, these things that are happening here shouldn't be this way. Why would they not listen to this man, this man of God who was coming in and pointing out the very obvious things that was happening? Instead, they kept listening to these people who taught falsehoods. Well, I might ask you the same thing. The first thing that I might ask you is why do you? Why do you listen to teachers and preachers who tickle your ears? If you're watching online, I would ask you that same question. Why do you listen to people, teachers and false, pe false teachers who tickle your ears? You've all probably got some of your favorite preachers and teachers who you watch on TV, who you listen to on the radio. And some of them are false teachers. And I would ask you, why in the world, whenever you listen to good gospel teaching, gospel-centered preaching at your church, here, every week, preaching straight from the scriptures, why in the world would you go and listen to someone who is a false teacher teacher online somewhere. 
One of the many things that I'm thankful for at Refuge is that we value the scriptures. We place a high, high value on the teaching of the word of God. That's why we do expository preaching. That's why we preach verse by verse, typically through text. Obviously, we're not doing that when we preach through minor prophets or sometimes even Old Testament texts because it's much more a narrative. It's much more big story kinds of things. But when we get into New Testament texts, you'll see us preach verse by verse, word by word through the text because we don't want to miss anything. We don't want to skip over the hard stuff. Our high, one of our highest values is uh, the authority of the scriptures and the preaching and teaching from it. We believe in its authenticity. Of the, we believe in the scriptures' authenticity. We believe in its authority. And we believe in its ability to change mine and your lives. However, many so-called preachers stand in pulpits across our city, across our country, across our world, and proclaim a false gospel. Not that there is any other gospel, as Paul would say, but they proclaim a gospel. They, they bring the gospel in just to tickle your ears enough to say, hey, this is gospel preaching, but they're teaching you something that's false, a false narrative around the, uh, around the word of God and sprinkling in the gospel, tagging on the gospel at the end of their sermons just to say that they're a gospel-centered church. They're saying that this is what is true in the name of the living God whenever they're teaching something that is not true. That's the same kind of thing that was happening in uh, Micah's day. Put a marker in Micah and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Here's what Paul had to say Uh, to the church at Rome when he was writing this letter to them. Here's what he says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay? Now, he's talking about a people, but I'm going to liken it as well to preachers that stand in pulpits along the way. And, and this same thing applies for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, or I would say preachers who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, teach something different than the scriptures teach us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. But although they knew God, they did not honor honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I'm going to stop right there uh, in the text. You can go and read the rest of that text at some point. Uh, But uh, uh, Paul talks about the fact that God's wrath would fall on people who suppress the truth and believe unrighteousness, that live in unrighteousness. And I'm here to warn you, Refuge, not to listen to these false teachers, people who suppress the truth. And just as in the days of Micah, or in Paul's day, whenever he wrote the letter to the church at Rome, Today, we are inundated with the following. 
priests who teach for a price. Prophets who practice divination for money and point to the Lord as the source of it all. Here's a short list for you of who I believe are some of today's worst false teachers that some of you may be listening to now. I'll start with Kenneth Copeland. You watch Kenneth Copeland? Turn him off. I know he's a good old Texas boy. Kenneth Copeland leads the list. T.D. Jakes. You listen to T.D. Jakes? He's a oneness He's a oneness Pentecostal preacher, which, which means he's not a Trinitarian. He believes that God changes modes. That sometimes God is God the Father, sometimes God is God the Son, and sometimes God is God the Spirit. If you come to our uh, Discover class, you'll know that we don't believe that here, that we are Trinitarians. That there is one God who reveals himself in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're co-equal, co-eternal. God the Father is neither God the Son nor God the Spirit. God the Son is neither God the Father nor God the Spirit. And God the Spirit is neither God the Father nor God the Son. Amen? Got it? Say it again. Say it with me. <laughs> you don't have to. We're Trinitarians. One, a God reveals himself in three persons. One God, three persons. I'll, go, I'll keep going. Creflo Dollar. What a name. You know what his wife's name is? Taffy Dollar. Not even kidding. Here's another one for you. A lady, Jory Micah. You ladies listening to her? John Hagee. He's a big old boy from Texas. Joyce Meyer. Ooh, getting close to home. Stephen Furtick, ooh, scratch him off the list. And the coup de gras, who is it? Smiling Joel Osteen. <laughs> yep. If you're listening to, any, there, there's others. That's just my top eight right now. There are others. Here's what they do: preach for a price. They're preaching for dollars. Practice what they do for money and point to the Lord as the source of it all. God help them. And if you listen to any of these people, turn them off. Never listen to they, anything that they ever have to say again. They're being used by our enemy. Instead of bringing the good news of the gospel, where it's Jesus alone as the hope of our salvation, they mix in prosperity and have profited off people who are listening to them, even some of you. Their message is that prosperity gospel, that God will make you rich. Today's world is where God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. These things are the antithesis of the gospel. Here's what the gospel calls followers of Jesus to lay our lives down, to take up a cross, which means you're going to die and follow him. That's the message of the gospel. Come die to yourself, not make much more of yourself. Give yourself up for the sake of others. That's the message of the gospel. 
Michael warned the people in his day about false prophets and their easy believism, the things that they were just going along with the people just to draw the people and milk their money, their pockets for money. Their end, though, being destruction. And I'm warning you today, church, don't fall into those traps. Don't fall into idol worship. Don't fall into spiritual infidelity. And though we don't do cult prostitution around here, we prostitute ourselves out to many other things. We give ourselves away. We give our bodies and our minds and our money to other things that don't draw us and point us to the king of kings. Don't look to other things, church, that can bring you only what Jesus can bring you. It's not worth it. Let's keep going. Welcome back. Why is this idol worship not worth it? Micah says for Israel... Yes, because of their sin and their unfaithfulness, they will be dispersed. He said, hey, it's not worth it because these things that you've been doing, the fact that you've been moving away from the one true God, it's going to cause you to be dispersed. That's his warning to the people. While they're in the middle of just enjoying their life along the way, he said, this is going to cost you, Israel. Then we get to chapter 4. Sorry, I missed my slides there. We get to Micah chapter 4. Here's what he says. Uh, Turn with me to Micah chapter 4. Let me get back to where I am here. Uh, Micah chapter 4. Look with me. Look in uh, chapter 4, verse 6. We'll read verses 6 through 10. Uh, Here's some hope that he brings, even in the midst of his judgment that he is pronouncing on the people. He says this in verse 6. And that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I've afflicted. And the lame, I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. You might want to underline that in verse 7. The lame, I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, you shall, uh, to you shall it come. The former domination shall come. Kingship for the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Have your, has your counselor perished? Is that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Underline that. There, the Lord shall redeem you from the hands of your enemies. Let's look at that uh, in verse 10, because I think that's, uh, that's a cool place, because he says this, there, in your exile, you shall be rescued. Even though I'm telling you, you're going to be driven away, I'm also telling you that you will be rescued. Honestly, I think this is one of the coolest verses, and I think the implications from it um, that we so desperately need to hear clearly and believe today. You need to hear what God is saying, or what God is saying through Micah to Israel of that day. This was God's promise. Here's what he promised during the day. God will reestablish Israel after their sin against him. Israel greatly sinned. They went away from him. They went to kind of find places where they could tickle their own ears, fill their own pockets, do what what they wanted to do, what, what they seemed right in their own eyes. 
But God, even though he was going to scatter them, said, I am going to rescue you. I'm going to reestablish you even after you sin against me. Such grace. Such kindness. Such patience of God with his people. This, this is really the epitome of grace. This is what grace looks like. Unmerited, undeserved kindness from the Lord. Undeserved favor from the God who, who was the one sinned against. God was telling them, this is what you're doing to me. This is, you're sinning against me. This is Micah proclaiming this to the people. You're sinning against your God. You're going the other way. You're doing the very opposite of what it was. You're going to be dispersed. But God in his kindness said, I'm still going to rescue you. I'm still going to rescue you. I'm still going to make you a people. I've promised to make you a people long ago, and I'm still going to keep my promise. Such grace. Now, I'll say this. We like stories of grace that get extended to people like this in the Bible. Would you agree with that? Yes? Nod your heads. Yeah, we like to read stories about this. We like the full measure of grace when it gets extended to us, right? I mean, I like grace to get extended to me. Do you like grace to get extended to you? Of course you do. We, we all like to have uh, grace extended to us. Here's where I think we wrestle with grace. Two main places. What about other great sinners today? Not you, I'm not talking about you. You're a great sinner as well, as am I. What about other great sinners today? What about Jeffrey Dahmer? Does he deserve God's full measure of grace? I'm not advocating that you watch the documentary. I'm, I'm not advocating that you do that. Um, his sins, they were many. His sins were gruesome. His sins were vile. But I've watched some of it. And I watched another 40-minute clip while we were traveling back from the beach. Listen, not watch, because I'm watching the road. Uh, listened, <laughs> listened to... Uh, uh, but I, I listened to another 40-minute documentary uh, with a pastor who spent a lot of time with Dahmer after he was in jail, who went to him and shared the gospel with him and gave him a Bible and believes that Dahmer was converted uh, in prison. Believes he uh, began to follow Jesus, uh, that began, he began giving Bibles out even in prison uh, before, he was, um, uh, before he was murdered in prison. How does that set with you? How does that set with you that, that Jeffrey Dahmer could be forgiven by God? That, that he would receive the same grace as you? That he would receive the same grace as your sweet little eight-year-old child? That his sins were many, but God's mercy was more with him? How does that set with you? We, we love grace for ourselves, right? 
I love grace for me. You love grace for you. You love grace for your children. You love grace for your friends. But we only want like a medium amount of grace for like Jeffrey Dahmer. You know, not the full measure, but a medium amount of grace for Dahmer. Or people like him who commit heinous crimes. As if our sins aren't heinous and gruesome to a holy God. Your sins are just to a holy and righteous God. They stink in the nostrils of God just as much as Jeffrey Dahmer's sins stink in the nostrils of God. The good news is that grace offers hope for people like Jeffrey Dahmer. Grace offers hope for people like you and me. You've got people like Jeffrey Dahmer. And then the second place that we wrestle with grace is for even those of you who think God's grace is not for you. Because that's some of you in here. I'm well aware that some of you have walked in here today listening to what I'm preaching here today. Maybe Maybe you're watching online and you're listening to what it is that we're preaching and teaching about God's grace today. And you believe that you've sinned too greatly in your life to merit God's grace to warrant God to be kind to you, to, to say that God would show me mercy. My sins, are, they are many, and there's just too many for God to forgive somebody like me. I, I don't have any doubts that somebody has walks into a place like this and go, preacher, you don't know what I did. You don't know how I've lied. You don't know what sexual escapades that I've been involved in. You, you don't know what deceitfulness that I've been involved in. And, and I appreciate that that works for you, uh, preacher man, but, but I, that's just not for me. I appreciate that God can forgive a murderer, but that pales in comparison to the things that I've done in my life. Things that I'll never mention to anyone. Only I know those things. Well, you and God know those things. Here's today's good news for you. God will redeem you, even you, after you sin against him. That's the message from Michael. Yeah, even you, listen, I'm talking to you who doesn't believe that this is actually true. Because today our sin produces guilt and so we hide from people. We're like, man, preacher, don't even look in my direction. I'm too guilty for my sin and I'm just going to hide behind the person sitting in front of me and I'm going to hide from you and I'm, I'm not going to get to know anybody in this church because I don't want them to know who I really am and what my sins really are. That's somebody here or somebody listening. I, I know it is. I've been in that seat before. Hide because of my guilt. Or it produces shame. And so we feel like everybody in the church is going to be like, shame, shame, shame. That's what we think people are going to do to us because if somebody found out about our sin, then people would be like, shame, shame, shame. And so we just run. We just run away. Or it produces fear within us. If somebody found out what this was like, somebody found out what I was really like, I couldn't be around these people. These people are church-going people. So you just avoid the fact of, be, of having any kind of interpersonal relationships specifically with people in your own church family because of your fear. Today, in, 
Have you ever said things like this? I'm unworthy of God's love. I'm too far gone. My sins are too great. God wouldn't love somebody like me. Ephesians 2 reminds us of a better truth. So you're, you're, you were in Romans at some point. Uh, turn, uh, if you, maybe you've gone back to the Old Testament, turn over to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. My, one of my favorite uh, uh, sets of verses in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2. This is what this text and the scripture tells us. We're only going to read five verses. This is what it says. You know, how does it start? Come on. How does it start? Y'all can't find your way to Ephesians or y'all are mute today. Yeah, there you go. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And that's, Paul is writing that to the church at Ephesus. He's telling them that that's the state that they were all in. And the same applies to each of us at Refuge Church today, that that's the state of our soul at some point in in our life. If you are breathing, this was, or maybe still is, the state of your soul. There are two words, uh, chapter 2, verse 4, what are they? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He said, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of the world. We were following the, uh, the, the, uh, the course of the sons of disobedience. That we didn't have a choice. That's just where we were. But God, because of his rich mercy, made us alive with Christ Jesus. By grace, we have been saved. That's what we see happening in Micah. There's grace coming. God says, you have sinned greatly against me, but I'm still going to do something about it. Ephesians chapter 2 was telling that to the church at Ephesus. And by proxy, I'm telling you the same thing today. You were all dead in your sins. Some of you still are dead in your sins, but God, being rich in mercy, will make you alive. That's what, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we didn't contribute anything to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary for us to be saved. God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Just like God had a great plan to rescue Israel after their great sin against him in Micah, in Jesus, God is rescuing and redeeming you and me by his grace. God will redeem you after your sin against him. After you have sinned greatly against him, God still will redeem you. Put your name in right there. God will redeem Scott after Scott's sin against him. Now you put your name. Don't put my name. Put your name right there. God will redeem you even after your sin against him. This is like real. This is true reestablishing. Without God, we are destroyed. We are dead in our sins. 
Without God, we are despondent. We are people with no hope. Without God, we are deceived. We believe the enemy. We believe the lies of the enemy. Some of you are doing that very same thing. One, you're dead in your sins. You have no hope, as Paul would say, but you are believing a lie from the enemy. But verse 4 tells us this thing. But God. We would all be dead in our sins except God chooses to do something different. He is always at work. Always. And today, he may be at work in your life. You may sense that stirring even in your life today. God's stirring you up, awakening you to the truth of the gospel. Because what I'm telling you is the truth, that even you can know God today. All right, back to today's text, chapter 4. Look what it says in, uh, uh, turn back to Micah, chapter 4. And look what it says with me there in um, verse 11. Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make you, I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hoofs bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote to destruction their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. But here, here's what I want to tell you about what, um, what Micah is saying. God is always, say always. God is always at work on behalf of his people. Always at work. It may not seem like he's at work, but he is always at work on behalf of his people. And here's what he's doing. He is rebuilding, he is reestablishing, and he is refreshing his people all along the way. He is doing that. He was doing that for Micah in his day and the people in his day, for Israel in his day. And he does the same thing for us today, rebuilding, reestablishing, refreshing. And, and, and so I know for some of you, it may seem like God is silent. It may seem like God is satisfied with your current circumstances, just leaving you there just to wallow in the circumstances that you found yourselves in. Or you may believe that God is even seeking out someone else to lay his blessings on or to, to put his hand on. But even in the midst of the calamity of your life, even in the midst of what you may think that you've ruined your life along the way, God is redeeming and reestablishing his people for his glory and for the plan that he has. That's what he was doing in Micah's day. He's doing the same thing in 2022 with his people. And then the good news just gets a little bit better. Look, what it, look in Micah chapter 5 with me, and we're going to read the first uh, five verses of Micah chapter 5. Here's what, uh, here's what Micah said. Now muster your troops, O, daughters, o daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, those who, uh, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up to the time when, when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd the, his flock in the strength of his Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, 
and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And then if you go down uh, in verses six through nine, God reminded Israel that despite all the calamity that was going on around them, there would still be a remnant of them that would be rescued and saved. There would still be a people God was still going to rescue a people despite their great sin against him. And then you get look at me in verses 8 and 9. This is what he says. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of my peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Look at verse 9. Your hands shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And so God reminds them again. He's like, I'm the one that's going to do this. I'm the one that's going to reestablish you. I'm going to put, I'm the one who's going to be at work here. Just say, God will work. Say that with me. God will work. He's not saying you're going to have to do anything. He's just saying, I'm going to be at work. I'm going to be the one that's going to do that. Look with me in... um, uh, verses 10 through 15. Look, look at some of these verses. Look at verse 10. He says, I will cut off the horses from among you. Verse 11, I will cut off the cities from your land. Look at verse 12. I will cut off sorceries from your hand. Verse 13, I will cut off your carved images. Verse 14, I will root out your ashrath among, among you. Verse 15, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. He was saying this to Israel's enemies. He said, God was saying, I'm going to be the one who's going to exact the trouble that is coming in your day. Listen, refuge. God is always at work. God is always at work. He's always at work rebuilding, reestablishing, refreshing. And God today is at work as well. Just like he was in the days of Micah, he is at work today. He does that work through Jesus. Rebuilding that which has been destroyed in your life. Because some of you have some things in your life that destruction has come. God is and can be at work rebuilding that thing in your life, making beauty out of ashes. God is and can be at work reestablishing relationships that have been broken, that have been severed, that have been dead to you for some amount of time. God is a God who can and will reestablish those kinds of relationships. He is a God who restores what the moth has eaten away. Things that you may say, there's so much that I've missed. There's so much that I was in my own sin and and it has uh, passed by me and there's no hope for me uh, anymore in that particular relationship. He will restore what the moth has eaten. And he will refresh your tired, weary soul. You're tired of running the race? God will refresh you. That rat race we all run, the one that seems to be never ending in your life, look to the Lord. For many of you, I know, like Israel in Micah's day, it may seem like God is silent. You know, when he put them in, uh, in exile, I'm sure it seemed like God couldn't hear a thing that they were saying. Like God, like whatever they were saying, whatever prayers they were praying were falling on deaf ears. So it may seem to you like God is silent. 
It may seem to you like God is satisfied with your circumstances. Like he's just okay with where you are because nothing seems to be happening right now. You may think God has passed me by and is seeking after somebody else to pour his blessings on, show his kindness to. But just like God was reestablishing Israel for his glory and his plan to fill the earth with his glory, I've got even better news for us today. God is doing that same type of reestablish, reaffirming, reconstituting those type of things in mind in your life today. Granting repentance and faith. Think about somebody that you know that has come to faith in the Lord Jesus lately. That's the work of God. That's the work of the Spirit. Reestablishing people, reengaging people. You may think, man, I've been praying for that person my entire life. I didn't think I would ever see them come to know the Lord. And God is reestablishing his dominion even in their own life. He is rebuilding what the enemy has plundered. Maybe the, maybe the enemy has plundered things in your life and you think, man, everything I do, everything that I'm involved in just blows away with the wind. God is in the point of rebuilding what has been plundered by our enemy. Maybe today he has brought you here specifically to reestablish you on solid ground where you're not building a house upon the sand. You're built, you, today you can begin to build your house upon the rock. Maybe you believe that the years behind you have been eaten by the locusts and there's nothing around you that you can point to and say, I see the work of God in my life. Maybe today he's here to refresh those years. The God who promised to reestablish Israel in this minor prophet's little book calling you, yes, somebody, you even, to himself today. Calling you to repent. Our sins, they are many. Calling you to say, I want to turn from my sins. I want to turn away from that sinful behavior. I want to turn away from engaging myself in that heinous sin. I want to turn, return, turn away from uh, engaging myself in that sin that I, that I keep going back to. Calling you to a fresh start, to be born again. Though your sins are many, his mercy is more. Calling you to believe the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is this that God knew we couldn't do it ourselves. You'll never be righteous enough when God requires perfection of you. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to do it on your own. You'll never be able to live that perfect life that God calls you to live. So instead, he sent God the Son to live like you and me, to be tempted in every way, yet he did it without sin. He lived the perfect life that we're all called to live. And then he laid his life down on a cross and shed his blood to cover our sins. The Bible teaches us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It also tells us that all those Old Testament uh, sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, that, that none of that can take away our sin. That was only pointing to the Lamb of God, Jesus, who laid his life down on a cross, shed his blood to cover your sin debt. The price has been paid. There's not a price for you to pay anymore for your sins if you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus. 
And when he died on a cross, he was buried in a tomb, and three days later, God raised him back to life. And he is alive forevermore, interceding for the saints at the right hand of the Father. That's the good news of the gospel. Today, that gospel can be applied to you. How do you do it? Repent of your sins, turn from your sins, and believe the gospel. Believe that this is true, that Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus did what he said he did, and that Jesus is alive, calling you to himself today. Our encouragement to you today, come to Jesus. Let's pray.